I wish that there was a better way for groomers and vets that are not necessarily business related to have better communication because I think it benefits all of the parties. Grooming in the veterinary hospital? No way. A client complained, never again. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today the master groomer with years of experience with your clients and their animals is Helen Schaefer, style services specialist and master groomer with the veterinary chain Heart and Paw. She shares where the communication breaks down and where it shines in the relationship between pet owner, veterinarian, and groomer, as well as her tips on improving your own working relationship with groomers inside and outside your practice. But first, Helen, how do you become a master groomer? The grooming industry is largely unregulated. You do not need a license to be a groomer. So one of the ways that you prove mostly to yourself, that you know what you're doing is you become third-party certified. So I am certified through National Dog Groomers Association of America. So my title is National Certified Master Groomer. I was the 14th in Pennsylvania to complete the program, and it includes four practical tests. So they make you groom four specific dogs, and then five tests, including your master exam, which covers all of the breeds that were not previously covered on the other tests, basic cat grooming stuff, zoonotics, cleanliness, CPR and first aid, anatomy. So it's 500 questions that cover the entire scope of dog. How did you pick that? Are there multiple organizations that will certify you and you like that one the best or you hear the best things about it? There are multiple certification organizations. Most recently, the AKC launched one. There's also the International Society of Canine Cosmetologists, and then there's the International Pet Groomers. So I picked NDGAA because it is the oldest and longest running one, but I am also two-thirds of the way done my ISCC, which would make me a dual master. I'd be a master pet stylist through them, and I have one test left for my AKC Master Groomer, so I'll be the second groomer ever to complete that program. Okay, this is fascinating because then I can ask you, you are in this unique position to be able to sort of measure one certification against another. Is there a lot of book learning inherent in these certifications or is it you need hours put in on particular animals and when we test you, you need to hit some benchmarks about how this looks at the end? So depending on which way you go, yes. The ISCC has 25 written tests and five practicals which includes their Dermatex, so that's bathing and drying, and you do two different coat types because each coat type requires different measurements. The NDGAA is more hours put in. There is a good amount of book learning, mostly through breed standards, which a lot of people don't think apply to pets, but understanding how a dog should function and should look does make your day-to-day grooms better too. Wait, I would be fascinated about that because I think in the veterinary world, there's a lot of talk about breed standards when it comes to literally breeding. So questions about should things be bred in or out of the population? Veterinarians have opinions about that. 
how do breed standards fall in? I feel like the breed standards people are most familiar with when it comes to grooming would be, well, this has to do with whether you're entering them in a dog show or that they match up with a particular aesthetic look. Are you telling me they're actually like day to day, like there are things we do on these dogs that are breed standards to make their day easier so they don't get sick, so they don't get stuff stuck on them? What do the breed standards look like for a groomer? The breed standards for a groomer are understanding how form follows function, but also things like lost art grooming, like hand stripping or carding, is actually a lot easier to do in the salon in the day-to-day than people think. And it helps prevent a lot of those skin issues that you get from the impacted undercoat, like the commonly referred to schnauzer bumps, which are an impacted follicle. It improves the coat texture and removes a lot of that excess sebum and dander that those double coats get, you know, and you want to make sure too, a lot of people get really aggressive with like de-shedding. And so it's important to understand like what a Husky's coat should look like. So you know when to stop because there is a point where it's not beneficial to have that much undercoat, but the undercoat does serve a purpose. And even just talking to your clients, A lot of people, when they have like a purebred dog or even like a schnoodle and they say, oh, I want it to look like a schnauzer. Right. You would think that a schnauzer owner knows what a schnauzer looks like. (laughs) And that is not always the case. And it's, you know, they have this like idea in their head because they saw it one time on this commercial or like a cartoon. And, you know, that's not necessarily the reality. So it's important to just, you know, kind of understand that how a dog's put together and a lot of groomers like to put flair on their grooms. Okay. And when you do flair, sometimes it's more important to take away in the right spots. When you talk about flair, what counts as flair when people are talking about that? So when we're looking at a dog, the front angulation, which is the withers or the shoulder blades for those who are not well-versed to the posternum or the breastbone, and back to the elbow, that's the front angle that should ideally in a dog be a 90 degree triangle. So it's 45 degree inner where those two points of lines meet. Um, And it forms a right triangle. So when a lot of people want to, especially like doodles that wear harnesses, you know, it's great to know that you can take that hair off and still make the dog look flashy because we don't need that hair to build that angulation. Same thing with the rear. A lot of people get, you know, dogs are are gross, and sometimes we get dingleberries um, or leaves, or we sit in puddles. So you don't need, you know, if a groomer wants to build the rear angle, which is, you know, the ilium to the ischium to the knee, so the, the hip bone to the pin bone, which is below the tail set, back to the knee or the stifle, that is the same angle in the back as it is in the front. And again, you don't need any of that hair. Unfortunately for us groomers that want to bring our, elevate our pet grooms, that's where everybody gets mad at. So if you take that off, your clients see that their dog looks better because it looks more compact and it has angles. And they, you know, when they walk, they really like kind of float now. Okay. And it makes maintenance easier. If those are important spots in the front and the back, where are points that you get pushback from either clients or are there ever issues when you're working with, there is some medical condition or there's something this dog's prone to. And so there's disagreement between, 
what the veterinarian says we should do about this fur in this spot and what the client wants to do and what you as the groomer, you're like, I know we can't. How does that weird triad interact? So it is definitely a weird triad because I feel a lot of times the client is sometimes that, that kid that goes and says, hey, mom, can I do this? And then, oh, dad said I could. And, the, you know, it's like groomer versus vet. And it's never really groomer versus vet. But some of the medical conditions that vets want groomers to do, but maybe, and again, you know, there are definitely dermatologists, there's skin experts in the veterinary field, but not everybody's an expert. Not everyone's a master groomer. But I'm also a certified canine esthetician. So I have taken extra training in skin and coat care. So one of the things that, we've been told by the client the vet wants us to do is to cut the dog short because it has allergies. And so sometimes, yes, that may help the dog, especially if they're getting frequent baths because they're allergic to their own dander or they're allergic to humans, which is a thing. But if it's environmental and it's, you know, leaf mold, the fur can hold more sebum in to protect that skin. So then it becomes almost counterintuitive. There's one thing like, we don't want this stuff collecting in the fur, but now you're saying, but there's also stuff in the fur to keep the stuff off the skin. Yeah. And the fur, obviously, just like our hair is dead once it leaves the epidermis. So we need to kind of find that right balance for that individual pet. And sometimes the answer is yes, keeping them short. And sometimes the answer is keeping them a little longer with more frequent grooming, whether that's at home or professionally. How often is your grooming, your experience in the years you've been doing it, how often does it happen adjacent to or in a veterinary clinic? And how often is it at a home or at your location? I actually work at a veterinary clinic currently. Um, It's Hart and Paul. We're a Philadelphia startup. We were founded with the idea of reimagining pet care. So we take kind of a holistic approach. So we want to make sure at our locations, we have 21 groomers total over our 12 locations. And we try to make synergistic relationships between our uh, partner doctors and our groomers. Okay. Because I think when you build a trusting relationship and you have open communication, then it's easier, you know, with say my experience, I see this dog every six weeks and the vet might see it every six months to a year. Like, I think this is weird. What do you think? And then we kind of problem solve it and come to the best conclusion for the client. Now, obviously, I'm never diagnosing anything. I'm not a vet. Right. There are things that I've noticed over the years. I've been grooming for 17. Uh, I've been working with Hart and Paul for three. The company's four years old. But, you know, you can see like, okay, the skin is red. There's a brown gunkiness to it. It kind of smells like rotted fruit. Like, I think this is yeast. And then what do you think, Dr. You know, Gullen, Dr. Karaki? So I think that's really great working at a vet and having that kind of availability and to be able to ask those questions and and get that help for that client right away. Previously, I've worked at other corporations. I've worked at private shops. I have done house call grooming. I feel like when you do it at a client's house, you get a really good bond with that client. But then when you have to kind of bring something up, like, hey, you know, so-and-so is looking a little chunky and they're older, so it's going to be bad for their knees. You're the bad guy. And I feel like that's true, whether you're the vet or the groomer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
in the previous situations, so now it sounds like the whole idea is that you will be openly and frequently communicating stuff you see, and the vet will be communicating with you, and the client will be communicating. So it's all perfect. There's no triangulation. It would be easy for anybody in the triangle to talk to each other. In yes. the situations where that, have you been in situations where specifically that was not the case, where either you were helping clients who went to a practice and you never talked to the doctors, or did you go and visit, like a lot of times veterinary practices have groomers doing hours, so they bring them in for some period of time to work. They're not really a staff member. They're not really not a staff member. They're kind of like this internal freelancer, right. completely different than all the other people who work there. Right. Have you done that? And what was that like? I have not done a contract work for a veterinarian, but I have, well, I mean, I can't say that I did once go, uh, I worked in a building that was pet centric and I had gone, the grooming salon was separate from the vet, but we went and did like a sedated groom one time. (laughs) once. (laughs) But I think that it's harder when you can't talk to the vet because a lot of times like a client will come in and this is oh, you got water in the ears last time, and now the dog has an ear infection. But I told them at the last appointment, hey, these ears really need to be checked out by the vet. So now did the vet say the groomer did this, or did the vet say there's moisture in the ears and moisture excess moisture in the ears causes, you know, uh, imbalance? Because the skin inside the ear canal is the same as the skin on the outside of the dog. There's still that microflora. There's still sebum. There's still yeast. And when things get out of balance, that's when an infection happens. So we get that kind of like back and forth. And, you know, sometimes they they blame the groomer. Sometimes they blame the vet. We infamously, and this broke my heart, had a Pomeranian come in that was 17. And it had to be put down because its dental health had declined so much. The bone was actually being eaten away. And the client told the doctor that was here that, their groomer, we were not the groomer, told them that she said, oh, I know that there was stuff wrong with the teeth, but the groomer said there was nothing that could be done. And the doctor was so mad that the groomer said this. And I I said to her, I was like, I'm pretty sure the groomer meant there's nothing the groomer could do. Like brushing the teeth at that point is not helping. So I think a lot of times when we're talking about that like triangle, when there isn't that open communication, things get lost in translation. And I wish that there was a better way for groomers and vets that are not necessarily business related to have better communication because I think it benefits all of the parties. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. 
let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. You know, that situation of sometimes clients, the person didn't communicate it right or the person didn't hear it right. And oftentimes clients don't want to hear what's being said. That same problem that groomer that you're right, that groomer might have said, I can't do anything about this. And they might have mentioned, well, you'd have to go to a veterinarian for that. The person did or did not hear that. And then, but veterinarians are in the same boat. They'll say, well, this is a problem that's going to be down the road and we should take care of it now. And in their head, they hear, it's down the road. We could take care of it later. And the veterinarian just doesn't make a really hard sell on right. it. And so, yeah, I get groomers are in the same boat there. Yeah. And like I said earlier, it's like the child between mom and dad, you know, <laughs> <laughs> selective hearing. <laughs> are there issues within grooming? Are there things either people want their cats and dogs over groomed to sort of save money? Like how short can we get this coat? How heavily can we groom this so I don't have to come back in a month? I could come back in two months or three months, however long it is. How often is that a problem? Or how often do people say, I only want you to take a little bit off where you're like, I think we need to take more. Both are a problem. Okay. 100%. And a lot of it is, I don't think that with 2020 and everyone being home, we obviously saw a huge explosion in the pet ownership population. And that's a problem with grooming. That's a problem with vets. That's a problem with daycares and training. Like I got a puppy in 2021, a full year after the pandemic part of the pandemic was over. And I couldn't get her into a, a family obedience class to save my life. I was on a wait list for forever. But that said, so yes, there are people who believe that because, you know, it's their first dog. They don't know. They read stuff on the internet. And, you know, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. Right. That, you know, their dog's hair can grow forever and does not need that much maintenance or vice versa. Like if I cut it really short, it won't grow as fast. Well, it still grows the same length. <laughs> Just like if I cut my <laughs> nails short, they're still growing, whether I keep them long or short, they grow at the same length. I think a lot of it is the understanding that when uh, groomers, we generally want the dog in every six to eight weeks because that mimics the hair and skin cycle, you know, going from that clear layer to the horny layer. And so it's easier if you understand, because a lot of groomers say six to eight weeks because they've always heard six to eight weeks, but they don't necessarily understand that coat and skin science. And so I think in the future, obviously, grooming can't stay unregulated forever. I'm a proponent of licensing, but I feel the groomers need to write the licensing, not somebody that's doing it in what they think is the best interest of a pet that's not necessarily going to improve things. But I, I do think continuing education in grooming is very important, which is one of the reasons that I did choose to be a master stylist, because I wanted to improve myself, and I'm always learning. So veterinarians for many years now, and maybe it's gotten worse and worse as the cost of veterinary care has gone up, have gotten the harangue that, well, you're just doing this for the money. So you're asking us, we used to come in once a year, and now you want us to come in every six months. And we used to do this preventive, and now we have three preventives we're supposed to do. You're just trying to make money. This is not the medicine getting better. This is just you trying to get us in more so you can get more money out of us. How often do you get the same complaint from grooming clients? Always. It, okay. Any... <laughs> Any um, pet owner centric Facebook group will tell like you can read three dozen posts and community groups, everything about I love my groomer, but they're just so expensive. Like my doodle costs more than my hair. And 
to that fact, yes. But if you wanted me to just do the top of your doodle's head, it would be the same price. <laughs> if you were really giving them a cranial haircut just on the top. Just oh, the yeah. top. Just a little off the top. That's fine. I will charge you the same as your $40 haircut. <laughs> I think that much like owners don't understand the advances in understanding the scientific understanding of veterinary medicine, they also don't understand what actually goes into a groom. It doesn't take just an hour. It usually takes an hour to bathe and dry a dog. And then you have nails and ears. And, you know, we're trying to do things in a gentle and considerate manner for the pet because nobody has a good time if you're trying to force it. You know, the dog's not having a good time. And the more you try to force an animal, the more they fight against you. So trying to go at that dog's pace, and especially cats, I do a lot of cat grooming. And I think many cat owners are very wise to that. We're on the cat's timeline, not their timeline. But then there's always that like first time long haired cat owner. And they're like, what do you mean it's going to be this long? And <laughs> Sorry. You know, that's how long it took you to get them in the carrier. That's definitely how long it's going to take me to do everything. So let me ask about that. Another thing that's been a trend the past five years or so, and it kind of started with Dr. Sophia Yin with low stress handling, and then there was a fear-free that's been heavily branded. How much does low stress handling or fear-free, how much explanation do you have to give? How do you keep these animals calm? Because during exams, it's hard anyway. Grooming is longer. Maybe they're not getting shots, but it might be more intrusive. I mean, you're all over their body constantly. And they're getting washed. It's a big thing. It is a big thing. And that's one of the things um, that actually attracted me about Hart and Paul is that we stress low stress handling. We have many fear-free certified, both technicians and groomers here. I'm AKC Pet Safe certified, which is a different program, but very similar. So one of the, the things that I know from fear-free training is keeping calm. A lot of people get frustrated because the dog's not cooperating. And it's like, why are they doing this to me? And if you take yourself out of the equation, it's easier to not react to that. That's especially true with cats. I don't get mad like when they hiss or like, oh, God, they're trying to get me. It's they're responding to a stimulant to a outside of their comfort zone. And we just have to kind of respect that. And I think it's very challenging because there are so many under-socialized dogs and cats right now that they were isolated with just their family unit for a while. And now they're kind of out and about in the great big world. It's difficult to let them learn to trust you. So consistency is key. And I think that's one of the great things about, you know, vets requiring more frequent appointments, because instead of it being this once a year, very, very scary thing, they get to build a relationship with this pet and also monitor their health more. You know, there's subtle changes to skin or gait or eyes and noses and ears that the owner might not notice until it's a huge issue where a vet or a groomer that sees this dog frequently and has that kind of like, this looks different than last time moment can really address that before it becomes this otherworldly, super expensive thing. Did you get or did you hear about groomers? Was there a level of frustration? Because so I heard from veterinarians who worried that there would be separation anxiety issues. And so these people would finally get in and puppies not being socialized at this very important moment in their upbringing that isn't replicable. You can't bring that back. So there's this point at which they can socialize. And if they didn't get to socialize, it's hard on them. 
Did you see a wave of, boy, a wave of new dogs, one, two years old, who, because of fear, they clearly were fear-based responses. They freaked out about their grooming appointments and vet visits. Yes, both the dogs and the people. Okay, the people too, okay. Yeah, I have several clients that are very like, are they done yet? Oh my God, I don't think they like this. And, you know, it's difficult to have that conversation of they're feeding off of you. There's a great book, The Other End of the Leash. I think it's Patricia McConnell wrote it. And it is about like the energy that you put out towards your dog in situations. And so I think just like, I know vets get this a little bit, but groomers definitely get it a little bit more that anytime there's like an accident, whether it's a tragedy or it's an injury, minor, major, you know, unfortunately it's the nature of the beast that there are millions and millions of dogs and hundreds and thousands of groomers in the United States. And sometimes stuff happens and whether it's negligence or a true accident, you know, nobody goes out and sets up their day to injure or maim a dog, but that gets played on the news. And I feel like that's always like a national level event that this dog, you know, was injured in the salon in like Montana one time and then every owner across the u.s hears about it and then they come in and they get this like anxiety about it and nobody decided to be a groomer or a vet because they don't like animals both professions are hard they're thankless we're told we're money hungry you know it requires a lot of skill and a lot of effort to do it well and you know you get these like one-off stories and it kind of ruins this trust and that's very difficult to deal with and these under-socialized dogs and these anxious owners like it's this horrible vicious cycle you know of bad energy feeding each other and again that's where building a trustful relationship and being transparent and open open communication with clients i think really helps and i think that helps here at Heart and Paw, like that's one of our core values is transparency and communicative. And so I think that really is something that anybody can adopt. And some people, more information makes them panic. I am one of them. I am like, the, <laughs> I am a, okay, oh my God, my dog is dying person. I am the worst vet client. I admit that. And I, uh, I obsess about my dogs and I'm like, what are you doing? And why are you limping? And oh my God, what is this in your so mouth? So you can feel your rational self as a groomer. You can just feel, it's like you flip a light switch and like, yes. oh, this is my dog. I can't think rationally anymore. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I understand the anxious pet owner because I am one. But being open and transparent and honest, like, yes, sometimes it, for certain clients, it can overwhelm them. And then they think their dog has cancer or is dying. It's the Google syndrome. Yeah. But also I think, for the owners that do have those trust issues and don't necessarily understand, well, why this and why that? And that's not how it was when I grew up, that more communication, those more facts, like even giving them a website that might have helpful references is great because then they can seek out that information on their own. And if they have follow-up questions, you know, email me. Can I ask you, sometimes there is advice to the veterinarian, and I think people are sort of pro-con this, there's arguments about it all the time, 
that one of the things you could do is there's some percentage of clients who should be fired every year. They're mean to the receptionist. They treat the veterinarian well, but then yell at the vet tech, whatever it happens to be, or they're always unreasonable. They don't, whatever the complaints are about them, you fire some people. How many times do you as a groomer have to fire grooming clients? And then what are the kinds of things that are fireable offenses? Well, yes, we've had to fire like half a dozen over the last three years. That's pretty good. Only like six or seven. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them fire themselves and it's the same thing. It's they're mean to the front desk. They're unreasonable. They complain. We're never making them happy. And I think that once you have that conversation where you're, you know, be like, hey, Mrs. Jones, like every time you come in, you complain about this. And unfortunately, this is not something that we can do better for you. So we need you to accept that this is how it is. We're doing our best. Or maybe we're not the provider for you. And, you know, some people kind of get it. And some people are going to make a big stink. And some people will realize that like, oh, I do do that. I think it's important that if there is a client that is really stressing you out, and nobody wants to deal with them, they're not necessarily worth keeping. Yes, they might go write a bad review, but they're going to sound as crazy online as they did in person. And it's very simply like, I don't think this is a good fit. There's so much burnout and so much anxiety and depression in pet-related fields because I feel the humans that are involved in animal care are more empathetic. Like, big hearts, smart, but you still get your feelings hurt. And whether you want to say that as a professional or not, like my feelings get hurt. I'm on Groom Team USA, which is a competitive groomer thing, but I finished third overall in the nation last year. And my feelings got hurt by a doodle owner who told me I didn't know what I was doing. And clearly I do. And I could <laughs> have just like, I'm sorry I didn't meet your expectation, but it still hurt what they said. And words hurt. And whether we want to admit that or not, like we carry that sometimes home with us and when we really need to let it go at the end of the day. So those people who just generate negative feelings and you just see them on the schedule and they make you panic, what regardless of what career path you are in, they're not the client for you. You will find another client guaranteed that will be grateful to be in there. Want to learn more about Helen's work at Heart and Paw? Visit heartandpaw.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review on iTunes, tell your friends in VetMed about us, and if you want more, you are in luck. Helen explains how to keep a great groomer in-house and build a career path for them in the extended version exclusively for our leaders' community. Learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.